Well, you know, on my, uh, my, as I was getting up this morning, I noticed when I was taking some vitamins and pills, and one of them, the, the, the you know, containers had a little warning message that said, you know, be careful, you know, don't take this um, if you're operating heavy machinery, those kind of things. And those are good warnings. There are warnings that we get from times, cautions that are about, you know, protective, you could really harm yourself. In fact, sometimes they are life-giving warnings. Uh, sometimes they're confusing. Like is driving down the road and see a construction site and you see a sign that says men at work. You never used to have to put those up before. You always knew what they were doing, right? Um, okay, that's a little bad slam. You, know, you ever wonder about that sometimes? To me, it's kind of confusing. You're, you're driving on a mountain pass and you've got a cliff down this side. You don't have a lot of room and there's a, another kind of cliff over here, kind of a rocky edge thing, and then it says falling rock, kind of like that helps me out a lot. You know, well, there are some that are just plain silly in our very illegal society where we're suing people all the time. Sometimes we've gone to an overindulgence of giving cautions and warnings. Uh, things like, on a hairdryer, do not use while sleeping. Uh, on a toilet at a public sports facility in Ann Arbor, Ann Arbor, Michigan, which makes you really wonder about uh, Michigan, recycled flush water, unsafe for drinking. Um, on an electric rotary tool, this product not intended for use as a dental drill. But I got a toothache. But anyway, um, how about on a cup of coffee? Caution. Hot beverages are hot. On a product called rubber band shooter, caution, shoots rubber bands. I don't get this one at all. On a butcher knife, please keep out of children. <laughs> and then one of my favorites is the warning label at MIT Junior Lab. Warning, do not look into laser with remaining eye. <laughs> You tried it once, probably don't want to try it again. <laughs> warnings are great. There's warnings in the Word of God. And sometimes we look at them and we may think they're silly. Some may be confusing. But you know what? The ones we're going to look at today, they really are life-giving. They're meant to protect you in your relationship with God. They're meant to protect you in your relationship with, with those that you love, your spouse, people, and your family. And others are meant to protect this body. It's meant to give life to this body and the relationships and what God has called us to do as a body. So if you look at Titus chapter 3, verse 8 through 11, we'll pick up. We read this verse last week, but it bears repeating because of how important it is. This is a trustworthy saying, says Paul, as he's writing to Titus in an island called Crete, where there were a bunch of people there living indulgent lifestyles, and, and many of their instructions were about self-control and about character. He says, this is a trustworthy saying. I want to stress you to stress these things. These are a warning message. So that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good saying this week after week. It's about what you do. It's about the good that you do. It's about becoming this kind of person that experiences God's goodness and then it pours through your life. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. Now here's really strong warnings. Here's the warning label on this whole thing that he's writing to Titus. But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law. 
Because these are unprofitable and useless. And you need to understand the word law is not the idea of some specific legal things. He's talking about the law in general. And he's saying the law where you get off onto non-essentials or onto things that you may have a conviction about. But we're talking about the law in general. This, This call to love God and to love others. Stay there in the center and then be careful about the quarrels and arguments that come about through all kinds of other things. And here he goes on, he says, one other warning. Warn a divisive person once, then warn him a second time. After that, the third thing, have nothing to do with him. You may be sure that such a man is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. Let me share with you what I call the first warning, which is not as maybe as pronounced as the second two that talk about avoid, avoid. But the very first one really is found in 3.8, and it's avoid any temptation to minimize the importance of God's word. Avoid any temptation to minimize the importance of God's message. This is a trustworthy saying. And I want you to stress these things. He's talking about something you just talked about in verses 3 through verse 7. Paul says, I want you to warn those so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These are excellent and profitable for everyone. And Paul is basically saying, stress this, grab hold of this. I'm warning you, cling to this truth. This is a saying that is well worthy of your trust. As Jesus would say, truly, truly, or verily, verily. Basically, in my language, it's bank on this. You can go to the bank and cash this. It will work. And basically, if you look at verses 3 through 7, which we looked at last week, it talks about once you were this way, but then God intervened. And as a result of that, he washed you from your guilt and shame, and he poured out his Holy Spirit on you so that you can be an empowered person of God, experiencing his love through his Spirit and pouring that out and sharing both the grace and the truth of God to people. If you look at verse 1, chapter 1 of of Paul's letter to Titus, he begins in the first line of this letter and he emphasizes this truth. Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Another way to say that is, I'm a servant who's been sent. And that's what everyone is here. If God has entered your life, you are a servant sent to pour out, to leak as broken vessels God's grace and goodness. For the faith of God's elect, those whom God is calling out, And then here's the one you under, and the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. The idea that this message has the ability to work in your life, to change your life, to transform you, and to make you into the kind of person God wants you to be. So don't minimize this. Don't downplay the importance of this message of God. And the truth is really simple God loves you, even in your sin, but doesn't want to leave you there. God promises to free anyone and everyone from their selfishness. If they will turn to him and put their trust in his love, they'll vow obedience to his word and live responsibly through his Holy Spirit. God will free us, as he says in verse 3, from the foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved lives that we have due to the patterns that we've grown up with, that we've learned, the habits that we have established within us, often at a young age that you learn as you're growing up and responding to the environment around you. The weaknesses that you have in your own temperament, we're all made differently in our own character forms and ways that God is at work in us, freeing us. 
the things that come generationally, that are strongholds, that are passed down really from generation to generation, that need to be broken. He is saying, here was what I want you to know. There is a message that we need to stand around, that we need to get in touch with, that we need to share with the world. And it's really pretty basic and simple. It's this simple fact. There is a God who loves you and is willing to break into your life no matter where you're at, no matter what your need is. So that you can know him and walk with him personally and see his message transform whom you are. That's that's the bottom line. He says that is a trustworthy saying. That is that is something you need to to understand. The key, Paul says, is this. This is a trustworthy saying. God's kindness and love appeared saves us not because of the righteous things we do. But he saves us through the washing of rebirth, the renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured on us generously. And so don't minimize this truth. I mean, it is the greatest it is the greatest warning that he is saying is this is trustworthy. In fact, he says there's two things you need to know about God's word. One is that is reliable. This idea of trustworthiness. Look at chapter one, verse nine. He writes to the leaders there in Titus. He says, select those who hold firmly to this trustworthy message. Okay. Now I want you to note as you go through the Bible, when the word trustworthy message is used, what it seems to always contain. Okay, look at first Timothy chapter one, 15 through 16. He's writing to people who are to give this message. Here's the rudiments. Here's the essential of the message. And he calls us around in unity. And he says in verse 15, here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full or wide acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. But for that very very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. Here's the message, the message that you need to know. That no matter where you're at, no matter what's going on in your life, I don't care if you are here for the first time and you're, you're hearing this and you're, you're feeling shame and, and guilt and, and you understand that you're a sinner. Do you know that God loves you? He's entered into history. He has taken care of that. He has desired for you to enter into a relationship with him because he wants you to know how deeply loved you are. For those of you who have accepted Christ, it doesn't change. That message and that word is still the same. It's not a one-time event that God somehow comes in and saves you from your selfish patterns and your sinfulness, that it happened just once. It does happen once, but it's something that goes on daily. Here's the message. It's trustworthy to share with anybody. God is available to you right now where you're at, no matter what you're dealing with. He is here for you. He has given you His Holy Spirit. And he wants to live and to move and to work and to walk within you so that as you begin to open up your life to him and you open up your life to others, he comes in and begins to transform that. That is a message that is reliable. First Timothy 4, 9 through 10. This is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. And for this, he says, and here's the reason we labor and strive. That we have put our hope in the living God who is the savior of all men, especially for those who will just trust. I love what we saw up here. Here's an example. When you look at Jamie and Jody, who stand up here and say, guess what? We were seeking God. And yet Jody said, but yet I wasn't trusting. That's true in lots of our lives, right? There's places we're seeking God and you're not maybe trusting. 
And I love the way they came up here and they, and they shared with the fact that here is this God who had entered into their life and he entered in through all kinds of different people. God works through all kinds of different people. He brought Randy into their lives for a period of time. He's brought other leaders into their life. He uses you and me in one another's lives here, but he uses your life in the lives of people around you, where you work, where you live, in your family, that you are to be sensitive and open to this message. And this message is so trustworthy and so reliable. And it's that God is available to break into your life, into your situation. All he wants is faith, humility, and open heart. Verse Timothy, Second Timothy chapter 2, listen to what he says again. Here's a trustworthy saying. Here's the trustworthy sayings. If we died with him, which means at a certain point we recognize that my selfishness and my sin was paying a price that I experienced. Usually it's the pain you feel here, but then you realize, too, it's a pain that's been against God. And there's a sense of separation from God. And you begin to realize and you die and say, I don't want to live this life anymore. I really want you to enter into my life. So once you've died to sin and then you continue to die to that selfishness, he says, we'll also live with him. If we endure the idea that if you persist and continue to move into this and continue to honestly seek to say, God, enter into all experiences of my life. He says, we'll also then reign with him. And then he says, if we disown him, he will also disown us. You kind of say, well, what does that mean? Basically, if you say, God, I don't want you involved in my life. Anybody as a parent tried to exercise your will in, a, in an adult child that doesn't want you exercising their will in their life? There's really not much you can do. If we disown him, he'll disown us. If we are faithless, though, I mean, Jesus, I just don't have the trust. I don't have the faith to really walk into this. He says, he'll remain faithful for he cannot disown himself. Like those disciples when Jesus at times would go, oh, God, oh, this generation, when are they going to get it? How many times do you think he says that about you or me? Gosh, Kevin, this is like um, test number 560 on the same question. And I don't want to do test and trial number 561 for you to learn it. (laughs) Titus 3, 4 through 7, it's the message of God's love and commitment to us to save, to deliver, to heal, to empower, to guide, protect, provide, and transform us. It's about what God's willing to do for us. And he goes on, he says, not only is it trustworthy, but it's useful, it's profitable, it's excellent. Meaning that it will bring about good results in our lives. In his companion letter, Timothy writes this, he leaves no doubt about the value of God's word. 2 Timothy 3, 16, he says... All scripture is God breathed and it's useful to teach people, to rebuke, to correct, to train, to bring about righteousness, which doesn't mean self-righteousness. It brings about the kind of life that is like God in what it means by living right and doing right and doing good. And so Paul says, I want you to stress these things. Now, he comes to this point in, in these verses, verse nine, and he says, I want here's two things specifically. Here's kind of a warning label that he puts on this letter. And he says, I want you to avoid any temptation to think you're godly because you talk about God. That's how I sum up what's being said here. Avoid any temptation to think you're godly because you talk about God. Paul's just said, stress the message. It brings about the kind of life that, that as you carefully consider how you're living it, that you express the goodness of God to others. But you note the word doing good. Now he moves to talking. It's really easy for me and for any people who are maybe more expressive to do a lot more talking than doing. 
And so he says in, in verse 9, he says, here's what I want you to avoid. This kind of talk that looks godly, but it isn't. Avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law. Because these are unprofitable and useless. Avoid all talk and discussion that may appear to be godly, but does nothing to bring about godliness. In fact, at best, they're unprofitable and useless. They cause confusion, and in many ways, they destroy life. Remember this, he says, be just because you talk about God or even talk about the things of God, it doesn't mean you're godly. Think about that a second. It's really possible that, that you can talk a lot about God. You can be in conversation. You can be in Bible studies. You can be in Sunday school classes. You can be in places where you're meeting with people and you can talk about God. But that doesn't mean that your character is becoming like God. See, one of the things about this avoidance he's saying is one of the things I want you to realize is never, ever, ever minimize this, this and, and fall to the temptation that God's message is not powerful to change lives. It always changes lives. But let me tell you this. If a life isn't changing and it's just merely talking, that's not the message problem. That's the person's problem. And so he says, I want you to realize this, that I want you to avoid any temptation to think you're godly because you talk about God. Godliness, according to this message, results in transformed lives that do good. It evidences the spirit and ripens like fruit. If you watch a person as godly and you will see over time they're becoming more loving, more joyful, more peace-filled, more patient, more kind, more good, more faithful, more gentle, and more self-controlled. Let me share with you this, that if in... Um, about a 10-year period, if you are a person that doesn't have patience and you're not growing in patience, it's not the message. It's not God's fault. God has the power to bring that about in your character. And he is doing everything in his will to bring that about. If you are a person who has difficulty with gossip and it's been that problem for 10 years, you know what? The Word of God says this, that the person who is in tune with God will in time, over time, as they invite people into their life, as they seek God's Word and they invite God's Spirit to work in them and they do everything they can, they will find that God will, through His power, bring about change. You have to transform. Because you need to know that God's Word is powerful and when it is powerful, it's not about a lot of talk. It's about actual actions that begin to change. Your behavior should change. We should expect behavior changes in one another. Right? I've used this before and I'll say it again. One of the difficulties with the church is that sometimes we don't, we don't have that sense of accountability and expectation. And I mean when we have accountability. I'm not expecting us as a large group to hold one another accountable. I'm expecting people to be in small groups where they open up their lives to one another and in the context of that, they get help. It may be in your life you need even a trained therapist or someone who is a Christian counselor who can help you understand the patterns that keep you locked in from changing. But it's your responsibility to grow. I've used this illustration. I, for, for instance, when my daughter was about, about a year or so of age and she was learning how to eat, it was really funny when you would give her cake or things like that and then she'd plaster it all over her face, you know. And, and then you went to that stage where you take the little spoon and you, you go up and down and then you kind of give it to her. And a lot of times she'd go like, you know, that kind of thing. That was, that was fun. Now my daughters are like um, close to 23, 21 they just both had their birthdays, didn't they? 24, 22. Okay. 24, 22. I mean, yesterday she had a birthday. Anyway, 24, 22. If my, my 22-year-old... Did I get that right? 
Yeah, 23, 21. You know, it's good to have your wife here who holds you accountable. You don't need to come next. No, anyway. Wouldn't it be really horrible if my 21-year-old came and I had to go and cut the meat and go, folks, the expectation is that the gospel message, which has power in the God who relates to you personally, who gives you his Holy Spirit, brings about transformation in your character, in your spirit. You should expect it of your spouse. You should expect it of one another. It means it comes with grace and it comes with truth. Avoid any temptation to think that a godly person can just talk about godliness. A godly person does good. They're not saved by their goodness, but goodness is the fruit of this new life. Jesus was godly. I love the way Peter says it in Acts 10.38. Jesus went around. Listen, this was his testimony. There weren't too many testimonies after Jesus' life that were written in one sense by the disciples, but here's one of them. Jesus went around doing good. That's the first thing he said. Pretty simple. Paul directly warns against foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law, which is loving God and loving one another, that are unprofitable and useless. He uses the word avoid in verse 9. The Greek is periistemi, for those of you who are Greek scholars here this morning. It's kind of a joke. Anyway, and, and means, it means to have nothing to do with or to take an about-face position. It means that when you're moving into a situation where you're finding it's about talk and not about change, he says do an about-face and turn away from it. That's what it means. Avoid that. Greek philosophers spent their time in, in Paul's day on, on foolish controversies and all kinds of speculations. Things you could never prove and even if you didn't, didn't do a bit of good for anybody. Middle-aged theologians would debate how many angels they could fit on a head of a pin. They had really big pins in those days. I don't know. Jewish rabbis spent time building elaborate imaginary genealogies. The whole hope was that they could somehow tie themselves back to David or to Abraham. And because they were tied back to this tribe or this person, they felt a sense of connection and identity. And they felt really good and somewhat godly. And it didn't matter one bit if their lives weren't godly. So I tell you, those of you who are in middle school or high school or, or whatever age you are, or maybe some of you as adults, it does not matter what your parents believed in one sense with regard to who you are before God. You will never ride on the coattails of their faith. It is your opportunity at this point in your life to begin to examine for yourself, and you need to do this, and parents, you need to let them. They need to take what's been external in the home and let it become internal in your life. And my prayer is that will happen in your lives. That you will honestly seek and you will go through what needs to be because there are certain things that you probably will see in your parents' faith and even in this church that need, to be, that need to be cut away to get to what's really the core, which is the message that God loves you and He is going to change your life if you open your life to Him. And you can live in a new way, in a new power, in a new path that brings about character and godliness and, and through you comes goodness to others. Paul's counsel 
in 1 Timothy 4.17, he says, Have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. Rather, train yourself to be godly. It's this expectation that you're to grow up, that you're to take responsibility for your own learning and life and growth. It's not the church's responsibility. Parents, it's not really ultimately the middle school pastor or high school ministry's responsibility. It's your responsibility before God. In fact, it's individually every person here's responsibility. So he says, train yourself in all ways like Godliness. He gives the idea of, a, of an athlete who's exercising. There are exercises you need to do. You need to have time in God's word. You need to understand what it means, what this truth is. You need also to have times where your life is quiet so you can hear your heart and hear the spirit of God. He's given you his spirit, so you need to listen. You need to be in relationship with people where they know your life and you're opening up your life story to them so they can begin to hear it and understand it and help you understand and see underneath the things that are causing the difficulties that you may not see together as a couple. I mean, it's really up to you how much you want to invite people and you want to invite God into your life so that your character changes because someday when you stand before God, He's not going to ask you how many times you attended churches, how many Bible studies you went to, how many verses you've memorized. He's not going to ask you what kind of choruses or what kind of hymns you sang. He's going to ask you this. Has your life become more like Jesus? And that's what we're about. We're about following Jesus, presenting this powerful message, knowing we have this powerful spirit within us. We are folks in a time within the church, and I'm not saying Wyzetta, but I'm saying in the church at large, within the world, where there is great changes going on. God is doing great things. And you know what? God won't fail. He will make it happen. But what happens so often when these changes occur, Christians become very protective and very afraid. And Satan allows people to get all filled with fear. And we kind of retreat and we build these walls and we protect ourselves and we hold on to and we It's more about being right than it is about being loving. And that is not what Jesus ever, ever revealed. Jesus spoke to the Pharisees who were going around in judgment, abusing people spiritually. We, folks are in a time of change, and we're going to be a part of it. God, through His Holy Spirit, has given us Himself, and as a result of that, we have perfect love, which drives out all fear, so that everywhere we set our feet, we have the Spirit of God in us, the presence of God in us, so that where we go, where you work, where you go to school, you have the ability as you open your heart to God because of this powerful message in God in your life, responsive to Him to see this God leak out of your life if you're broken and humble. I'm just so excited about that. Church, don't be afraid. You don't need to be afraid where you walk. You need to be wise, but you don't need to be in fear. Avoid every temptation, he says, within the church to not deal with a divisive person. This time Paul says avoid, and he uses a different Greek word, and again for Greek scholars, the word is para-i-te-o-mai. It's a different word. It means to avoid in the sense of reject, not just to turn and go the other way. It means to avoid in the sense of reject. It's a much stronger word in verse 9. It literally means not to associate with that person. The NIV says it this way, have nothing to do with him. Romans 16, 17, Paul writes, I urge you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions, put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you have learned, keep away from them. The idea is, watch out for those people who come with this and, and, and are not willing to understand and to move into this trustworthy message that brings transformation to lives where people are, are accepting and, and, and beginning to see the transformation of God change them into more godly people. Watch out for the people that come along and try and put obstacles in it and seek to cause divisions so that that work can't happen. 
That's what you need to watch out for, he says. In fact, it's really interesting. If there's a person, he says, causing division, it's the responsibility of the leaders in the church to deal with this individual or group of individuals. I said it in the first service, and I remember as I was speaking, some businessmen were shaking their head. And the reality is this is true in businesses. This isn't true in any kind of social group. This is truth that can be used in any kind of situation. He says when there's this kind of thing happening, when a person moves away from what's essential and begins to attack the spirit of what's going on so there's division occurring, that person needs to be warned once, warned a second time, and then you need to do what I call have a church timeout or a timeout. Like, you know, moms, you have you know, put the kid in the corner and you time out. That's really what the Word of God has to say. If you define the word divisive, it says in the Greek word, it's the word that we get the word heretic today. And you have to understand the word heretic then didn't mean the same that it means now. You know how words change in their meaning over time? Well, that's one of these that did. When we think of heretic, we think of a person who's been burned, you know, you burn them at the stake kind of thing. Well, that's not exactly what it meant back then. In fact, one commentator, Simpson, plainly states that a divisive person is an opinionative propagandist who promotes dissension by his pertinacity. Now, isn't that plain? No. Translated, I had to sit there and go, what did that mean? A divisive person stubbornly promotes their opinion and prejudice at the expense of unity. That's what the word heretic originally meant. It wasn't burn at the stake kind of person. A divisive person stubbornly promotes their opinion or, proje- or, or their... Um, their own little niche at the expense of unity. Originally, this word, as I said, didn't have that connotation. By divisive, Paul means a person who decided to be right and that everybody else is wrong. He has set up his ideas or, or her ideas as the test of all truth. And so divides this process of what God is seeking to take place without, within the body and throughout the community. We are to be very careful, he says, of any opinion which separates us from fellow believers. A true test of an effective ministry, folks, is not that it produces lots of converts, but that it produces converts that look like Christ who are godly. Right? If we know what a divisive person looks like, according to what Paul says here, then this is how you deal with them. It's what I said is a church timeout rule. Look at verse three, chapter three, verse 10 and 11. He says, warn a divisive person once. Warn him a second time. Third, after that, have nothing to do with them. Titus 1.11, if you look back at that passage, it's the first warning in a sense. He says, for there are many rebellious people, mere talkers, deceivers, especially those of the circumcision group. They were taking something that was not essential to the gospel and trying to make that essential. They were putting something in the way of God and his power to transform lives. That the church was to carry out as the trustworthy message of God. And they, he says, must be silenced because they're ruining whole households by the teaching and ought not to teach for the sake of dishonest gain. Warn them, he says, they must be silent. It's not appropriate what they're doing. It may be an emotional need that drives them. It may be a personal preference. It may be a character issue. It may be a bad habit, but you must tell them to cease and desist. Warn them once. Warn them a second time, he says. Now, if they don't stop, warn them again. This time it's sharper is the, is the idea. In Titus 1.11, Paul says these talkers and deceivers must be silenced. And then he goes on in verse 12 and he says, because here it's more than just a a need, it's a character issue. Even one of their own prophets has said, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. In a sense, you have to understand that the character that you're dealing with needs not just a, a nice, you need to be quiet, that now you need a stronger sense of warning. 
So Paul continues in verse 13. He says, therefore, rebuke them sharply. So that they'll be sound in the faith. The idea is this, that it's like if a little child is you see the child and they start to reach for the, the stove and you say no. And they, they stop and they don't do it. And, and then the second time they start to reach for it. And those of you who are against any kind of physical punishment, you might not like this illustration, but they reach for it the second time because, you know, if they put that on there, they're going to have a huge bad burn. You actually slap their hand to get a hold of their attention so that they stop. That's the idea here. It's a rebuke sharply that says you can't do that. Warning. You're destroying relationships. You're destroying the relationships of a body that is meant to do this process of bringing a message that brings about change in people's lives. And so in First Titus, in Second Timothy 2, 14 through 16, he says, Warn them before God against quarreling about words that's of no value, only those who it ruins those who listen. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a workman who does not need to be ashamed, who correctly handles the word of truth. Avoid godless chatter, because those who indulge in it will become more and more ungodly. And if they don't turn away from sharp rebuke, then Paul concludes with these words in, first, in Titus 1, 15 and 16. He says, both their minds and consciences are corrupted. They're not willing to listen. In a sense, he says, after two warnings of increasing severity, then you need to avoid them, have nothing to do with them. You say, well, that's a hard message. You know what? Don't you do that with kids? Anybody watch, you know, different, like the nanny or different things? They, you know, it's really important. Sometimes you just need to set them aside so they can stop doing what they're doing. There is a sense that in some cases you need to take a person, if they're so disruptive to a ministry, you say you just can't be in this ministry for a period of time. It may be that if a person is so disruptive in the whole body, you need to take that person, you need to remove them from what is happening with the whole group. This works whether it's in the church or in businesses and other places within the home. There's this little thing called it's time out. You need to remove them from that relationship so that God hopefully, this is the prayer, not punitive it's restorative, that God will take and at some point begin to get a hold of their heart and through that change they will begin to see their need of God in this situation. And God says these warnings are so important for the body. Folks, what we're about is we're about seeing this word of God that comes, that has the ability because it puts you in relationship with the God who gives you his Holy Spirit, washes you clean, and gives you um, this ability to live in relationship with him and with other people. We're about this God who begins to do that, begins to transform our character and the characters of others so that we can begin to live together so that we can do something that nothing, that, 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 that has not been done too often in history. And that's that people are so filled with the Spirit of God that everywhere they go, they ooze out the power and the presence of God, and people are touched by that. And so he says, that's why I don't want you in any way falling into the pattern of just talking about it, thinking you're godly, and I don't want you to fall in the pattern of letting people go around and divide out what God wants to have done. Let me read to you some, I think, some headlines. Teen drowns while lifeguards fight over equipment. Family of four die in auto accident after two EMT units debate who's authorized for the, the uh, call. House burns with four children dying as firefighters quarrel about whose jurisdiction it is. Wouldn't that be horrible? Those aren't true. I just made those up. But I made them up because of the power I think they evoke in the sense that, you know what, that kind of thing happens. That happens spiritually. It happens 
in, in ministries. It happens in all kinds of places when people start to begin to, to argue and quarrel and get into the non-essentials because there is an essential truth that we all are called to be around, and that is there is this God who loves you, who has the power to change your life, to forgive you of your sin, to allow you to live in relationship with him. And as you begin to live in relationship with him and with other people who are humble and want to live that way, he has the power through his word as you pray, as you meet with people, to change your character, to cause you to become more like Jesus Christ. Because when he does that, he wants to take the very desires he's placed in your heart and help you get in touch with them because he's the God who places those true desires there so that you can begin to grow the character to to actually live in those things that you most want. Man, I want that. And I know you do too. And so we look at this and we say, God, may our words match the way we live. Father, as we have the worship team come to sing, um, God, we do pray that our life will be like a song that's, that's not just speaking out words, but it's living out the truth in all that we do. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.